Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today comes from Mark 2, 18 through 22. And it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat, and I'll encourage you to open up your Bibles or uh, scroll to them, however you access it, uh, and get to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, where we're at today, as we walk through the, uh, the gospel of Mark, beholding Jesus, our King. Can we turn the lights up in the back, like halfway, so that everybody can read, take notes, all that stuff? Cool. Uh, have you ever learned how to do something and somebody introduced to you a new way to do it? Like you've been doing this for, for a while, you've got it down, you've got this rhythm and pattern of doing that new thing, and then somebody steps in and like, no, 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 don't do it like that anymore. Now do it like this. So some of you may have experienced this as parents or as kids. Um, when the boys, Noah and Levi, my twin boys, were two, we got them balance bikes. And it might be like two years old on a bicycle, they are awesome. And but nonetheless, they, they, they had these little tiny bikes. And we were talking like the whole bike, like this big. And so they started on these balance bikes, riding around the whole house. And then we moved them up to a little bit bigger bike, still a balance bike. Just to clarify, balance bike means bicycle with no pedals. So you kick your feet and you just kind of ride around and do this. And we'd go the mile and a half block on those balance bikes. And then when they turned four, they got a, a bike with pedals. And so as we began to introduce them to this new bike with pedals, uh, we got the bikes and I immediately did what probably most dads shouldn't do. And I immediately took the training wheels off and I hid them. I was like, you know how to balance. You ride down hills with no pedals, with your feet up in the air, all over the neighborhood. You don't need training wheels. And so I took them off. Because it was like, oh yeah, you already know how to balance. Let's just keep riding. Now all you do, instead of put your feet up in the air, is you put them on the pedals. And they threw a fit. And they threw a fit because they had to learn how to pedal now. They knew how to balance, but they didn't know how to pedal. And they wanted their training wheels. And so I put the training wheels on. And for like two weeks, they did their training wheel thing. And it was just this battle and this conflict because I see them, see them ride their bikes. And I'm like, you don't need training wheels. And I see them crash their bikes because they're dependent on something that they don't need. They're leaning on a training wheel when they don't need to. They can pedal. They can ride. They know how to do this. They just lack the confidence and understanding of how to put the pieces together of pedaling a bike, did it on a tricycle, balancing a bike, done it for multiple years. And it took a few weeks of us fighting back and forth about, no, you don't do it this way, you do it this way. Because I was trying to teach them a new way to ride a bike with pedals where they had been learning how to ride a bike that had no pedals. And so there was this difficult challenge that came about. And, and today as we look at Jesus, as Mark continues to unpack who he is, and we behold Jesus our King, we're introduced to a new way, the new way of the King. 
is what we're introduced today. Specifically, it comes about via a question and Jesus' response to that question. So as we've seen over the last few weeks, there's a series of conflicts that are happening with Jesus and the religious leaders, the scribes or other, other God-fearing, godly men coming to him, seeing the things that are Jesus is doing, and it's different. And they're like, I don't understand what's going on here. You said you can forgive sin. You're not supposed to do that. I don't know what's going on here. You're eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. You're not supposed to do that. And today we have another question. And so as we walk through this, we're going to see this. We're going to see the question that's posed to Jesus. We're going to see the, the bridegroom. And then we're going to see the new way of the king. The new way of the king. So here we go. The question starts like this in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples, again, this is John the Baptist, not like John Jesus' disciple. He doesn't have his own yet. That'll come in a few years. But John the Baptist, his disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, meaning Jesus, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your di disciples do not fast? And, and the, if you read this account in Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, specifically it says that these are the, the disciples of John the Baptist asking this question. And they're asking not a theological question. They're not asking Jesus a question to try and trick him. They're asking a methodological question of like, why don't you do what all the other religious leaders are doing? Like all the other religious people, John the Baptist, whole crowds of people come out there, He's got all his disciples, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders and teachers. They all do this. You're clearly a man of God. You do miracles no one can do. You teach in a way no one's done. But why don't you fast? Why aren't you doing this religious stuff? You are a religious teacher. You are a devout man of God. But you don't fast. Why? Why? And specifically, they're getting at two things. And there's two reasons why Jesus doesn't participate in the fast alongside of the Pharisees and uh, their disciples and the disciples of John. And it kind of give us a picture of what fasting meant in their day and where it came from. So in the Old Testament, everything was looking forward. Everything was looking forward in the Old Testament. And specifically, when it came to people fasting, there was one time every single year where God's people were told to fast. And it was at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day where the priest, the high priest, he would kill two, or he would anoint two, um, two lambs. One would get killed, one would be taken out in the wilderness and let go. Uh, he'd take the blood of that lamb, and he, through lots of prayer and all kinds of stuff, roped tied around his leg in case he dies or whatnot, goes into the holiest place of the temple, and he makes atonement for all of the sins of the whole nation. And in that moment, all of God's people fasted. Now, all of them didn't eat, and they sought the Lord. They'd, they'd wear sackcloth, they would, they would mourn, they would seek the Lord in prayer, and they would plead for God in his, his mercy. All of this was instituted by God. The, the feast, the sacrifices in the temple, the Sabbaths every single week, the synagogue worship, the way they prayed and why they prayed, their fasting, all of this is looking forward. Their practice of worship was looking forward. It was looking forward to something, but it wasn't, uh, to clarify, even though their fasting, even though their worship, even though their spiritual disciplines, reading, uh, going to church, all that kind of stuff was looking forward, it was still faith. That, that Just like Abraham, it says in Romans, he was justified by faith. That, that when he took Isaac up on the mountain, 
following God's commands, he trusted in the Lord's provision of a sacrifice. Or if he did sacrifice his son, that he'd raise him back from the dead. His faith was demonstrated in his worship, in his fasting, in his obedience, all looking forward to a future promised sacrifice. That all of that worship was intended to look forward to a future Savior. Their, motion, their worship, their fasting, their singing, their gathering, their feast was motivated by faith. But it was motivated by faith in a coming King, in a coming Messiah, in a coming Savior. And this is throughout the entire Old Testament. Throughout the entire Old Testament, and we see here, John's disciples are fasting in step with the, with the tradition of all of the Old Testament because they're looking forward and they're longing deeply for the day when a Savior would come. And then there's the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have, have distorted and manipulated the Old Testament. They, they've got some things very wrong. They, they don't look forward like you might look forward to the birth of a child. Now, just to clarify, if you're single, like single adult, we love you, but I'm going to use a lot of illustrations that speak specifically to parents or to adults or, or married people, not to exclude you, but because the text does today. So I just want to say, I love you. I'm glad you're here. I, I don't want you to feel excluded today, but there's a chance that you're going to have to stretch to feel these illustrations. And that's, that's okay sometimes, but I just want to say that and just acknowledge the reality of it. Uh, but, but think about this, that, that if you have the excitement and the long-awaiting birth of a child, it's nine months-ish time, and, and how does that excitement and anticipation play out? You're looking forward to something in great expectation, in great anticipation, in great celebration, in ways that it affects your bank account. It affects the way that you plan your time with other people. Oh, we can't, we can't come to Thanksgiving this week because she's going to have the baby within a few weeks of Thanksgiving. Sorry. It affects the way you spend your time. It affects what you, what you do in your home and how you prepare for that expectation of a new child. All of this is because there's a great expectation and longing for something that's about to happen. The birth of a new child. In the same way, God's instruction throughout all of the Old Testament about worship, the practice of the spiritual disciplines and fasting and prayer and gathering and all this stuff, was looking forward. It was looking forward to something. It was looking forward to a Savior, a Lamb, a King, a Prophet, a husband. And this distortion over the course of years begins to grow. And it's a distortion not of faith in a future coming, but a distortion of self-righteousness, a, a I can do, where the Pharisees begin to take fasting, which is meant to, to be a demonstration of their faith in a coming Savior, a coming King, and they begin to make it as a way of earning the favor, love, and approval of God. So they would add two. So everybody's required according to the law to fast once a year, but no, the Pharisees, they said, no, everybody, we want to put up a hedge of faithfulness to make sure we have the favor of God. This is all wrong, by the way. So we're going to fast twice a week. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, every single week, the Pharisees and their, their teachers, their scribes and their disciples would not eat for 24 hours twice a week. 
And the more devout of them would go even longer than that. They would add two because they believed and they were cultivating and teaching that the practice of sacrifice and Sabbath and worship and, and giving and fasting and prayer and all of these things was not uh, in, in worship for a future coming king, savior, and atonement, but was to earn the atonement that was promised. And that if I fast twice a week, God will love me more. If I pray more loudly or use better words, then, then God will hear me, that he'll have have more love and affection and favor for me. That they began to twist the way that God instructed his people to worship in the Old Testament as a faith demonstrated looking forward as a looking inward to see if they could cultivate a righteousness that was required to be saved. So they fasted and they fasted extra and they gave and they gave everything, even their spices. No joke. They, they took their plants that were for their cooking, and they were like, okay, what, how much is 10%? Okay, take that to the temple. And they did all of it. All because they believed that because of their religious actions and moral behavior, God would love them. See, they had a wrong understanding of themselves and a wrong understanding of God. They missed this essential truth. That is it, it is impossible. It is impossible for them to be good enough to outweigh the sin and bad that's in their hearts. They missed this essential truth, that God is a loving Father who knew they would never be good enough. So in His never-ending love, He promised to give away righteousness freely to all who would believe and have faith. That they missed the essential truth about who they were and they missed the essential truth about who God was, which led to self-righteousness. So as, as these, this question is posed to Jesus, why don't you fast like the Pharisees fast? It's, are you actually a righteous and godly man if you don't fast? Are you actually a, like a, a, a godly person if you don't pray? They're questioning the, the credibility and and holiness of Jesus in this question about his fasting or his lack thereof fasting. And I think it's worth us stopping for a moment and just acknowledging that we are very prone to also fall into the same rut of distortion that the, the Pharisees did. We're very prone to fall into the same rut and thinking that, oh man, I need to, I need to read my Bible more and then God will bless me more. Man, I, need, I, I, mean, I haven't been going to church. I, I mean, you probably hear this if you talk about going to church with people who don't go to church. They say something, yeah, man, we need to get back into it. Like, yeah, like, and, and they frame this picture of like, man, bad, things are going bad. I need to do stuff for God. And, and that's just simply not true. But we can fall into this rut of thinking that, oh, man, uh, like I'm struggling or, or we're not doing financially well or, or this. And it's all because I'm not really, really uh, trusting Jesus. I'm not really... Um, reading my Bible enough, I'm not praying enough, I'm not coming to church enough, I'm not giving enough, I'm not fasting at all. Like, like we, we begin to, to, to fall into this rut of thinking that your, your, your affection in the eyes of God, His approval and love of you is conditional upon your behavior. And this distortion cultivates a, a, a false gospel and a really deep rut of unhealthy, unhealthy uh, religion. 
where we begin to think wrongly about ourselves that we can do enough for God's love and wrongly about God that his love for us is conditional upon your doing. You see, Jesus rejected the fasting and religious practices of the Pharisees. He doesn't reject the teaching of the Old Testament. Let me clarify. There's nothing wrong with a Old Testament faith demonstrated through worship looking forward to a coming Savior. That was right. He does reject the Pharisees' teaching about why and what's happening in fasting. But look with me at the next part, and let's see how Jesus answers them. Let's see how Jesus answers. And as he answers, he uses two particular parables to answer their question about fasting, particularly why he doesn't. One is a wedding, and one is about cloth and wine, or or cloth and new, like a hole in cloth, and and wine and new wineskins. Let's start with the wedding. Uh, Mark 2, 19 through 20 says this, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. See, Jesus uses a story, and and oftentimes this is a passage of Scripture that we can be like, I don't really know what you're saying, Jesus. Should I fast or should I not fast? I'm not really sure, but let me help. Let me help us understand what's going on here. Jesus is painting a picture of him as the groom. That the bridegroom has arrived. And, and, and in a wedding feast or a wedding celebration, if you've been to one, people don't show up mourning and crying as if it's death. They come excited to celebrate in this new union. It will be weird and inappropriate for the best man and, his, and the groomsmen to come to the bridegroom and say, hey, instead of a, a bachelor party, we decided well, we would just turn off the lights, play sad music, and just cry all night. It would be awkward, it would be weird, because a wedding is a time of celebration. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's pointing to himself, that Jesus is making a a declaration about who he is, that he is the long-awaited bridegroom of God's people. That from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are wed together, The first wedding in the Garden of Eden and every wedding that follows is meant to point us as God's people towards a future wedding that would come between God and his people. That that everything in the life of the people listening to Jesus talk right here. Now put yourself in the first century Jew context. Your your people, every book you've ever read, kind of like books, scrolls, uh, all the stories you've been told, your entire education, your weekly worship, Every holiday, which isn't like just Christmas, it's like every other month you have some grand feast. Not all of it. Your grandparents, your parents, you've grown up singing these songs. Your house is filled with dancing and songs and you eat this special food. Everything that you do in all of your life is pointing to one thing. Every aspect of your culture is intentionally constructed over thousands of years by a sovereign God, moving generation to generation, pointing to this moment. All of the fasting was leading up to this. All of the temple worship was leading up to this. And so Jesus is saying, I don't fast because it's party time. I don't fast because it's a day of celebration. That God has promised a a groom to come. This is Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, 
so shall your sons marry you. And also the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. That God's saying, I will rejoice over you as my bride. That this epic love story of God and his people is leading to the arrival of the groom, which is weird because we're all like, oh, the arrival of the bride. No, not in God's story. The arrival of the groom. In Hosea chapter 2, if you haven't read the story of Hosea, it's an epic story of love, far exceeding any that you've watched or seen or read. God says this in Hosea 2, 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. Which like, take you as my wife. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That interwoven throughout the whole Bible is this forecoming, this future coming, this looking forward to the arrival of the bridegroom, the groom to show up. And Jesus makes this epic declaration that for the last thousands of years that this promise has been made and you've been fasting and hope that it would come is now. The bridegroom is here. The time of mourning, the time of fasting, the time of waiting, the time of longing, the time of looking forward is over because he is here. Because he is here. And here's a particular beautiful part of the wedding story, though. That Jesus, the bridegroom, came, but what did he find? Paint the picture of this. Uh, you're a, you're a, you've just gotten engaged. And, and after getting engaged, what is an engagement? It's a promise to marry. That's what it is. It's a, I love you, I'm promising to marry you. But then you have to separate for a time. Not like something went wrong, but maybe he has to go off to work somewhere. And he's gone or, or off to war. Maybe he's deployed in the army or something. And in that long time where you're distant away from one another, he remains faithful. And you're instructed by him to look forward to his return. To when your groom would come back and take you as his wife and you would live in love. And when the groom returns, what does he find? He finds an unfaithful wife. That in his faithfulness, well gone, and his promise to return, she hasn't waited. She's played the adulteress. She's gone out on him. We are the adulterous wife. We are the unfaithful bride of Christ. When he returns and sees our unfaithfulness, will he file for divorce? Will he be angry? Will his love be enough to absorb the pain of our adultery? See, the beautiful part of this wedding story of the groom coming is that his love is enough to cover our adultery, our sin. Ezekiel 16 paints this picture of Christ and his love and us as his bride in adultery. And it says this in verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love. 
and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, Desire declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Verses 59 and 60 continue and say this, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you and all that you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish you or establish for you an everlasting covenant. In verse 62, he continues, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I or that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord. And you see, in our unfaithfulness as the bride of Christ, in our adultery, he has promised and said, I will not only come back and I know of your unfaithfulness, but I will cover your nakedness. And then in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they take that fruit, they say, no, not your way, God, mine. What does God do? He finds them in their sin. There's judgment and consequence. And then he sacrifices and makes clothes to cover their nakedness. That he covers their shame with sacrifice. And and when our groom has come back in Mark chapter 2, it's fulfilling this Ezekiel 16 passage where it says, I've come back and I will cover your nakedness. I will cover your shame. I made my vow to you and I will keep it. That even though you have broken your vow to him, he says he will deal with it. And how does he deal with it? He deals with it in sacrifice. That Jesus came, your groom, to take you as his bride and to cover your, un, your, your sinfulness, your, your unrighteousness with his righteousness. Why does, a, why does a bride wear white? It's a picture of this. It's a picture of of the sin being covered in spotless white. Like Christ has come and given us his righteousness, his sinlessness to cover you. And then to, to deal with your breaking by being broken in death. He says that he will remember And you will remember, and he doesn't want to come out of your mouth again the shame that you feel. Freeing you from the shame of your adultery, of your rebellion, of your sin. That he has once and forever atoned for. That Jesus covers his adulterous wife with new garments, with white righteousness, with sinlessness. That his love the, 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 the groom who has returned to an unfaithful wife has love that surpasses all of your unfaithfulness. That this picture, this statement when Jesus says, I am the groom, the groom is here. We don't fast, we party. It's because 2,000 years of fulfillment happened here in this moment. God showing his faithfulness to return and take his bride. And in taking his bride to to deal with her unfaithfulness and to cover her in his righteousness. That Jesus' love for his people 
that, that not only did he, he didn't overlook, then he forgave and he covered our sin. Dying on a cross in her place. And you think Jesus says, no greater love has anyone than this than to lay down his life for his friend. That the groom has come to take his wife, and in order to take his wife, he had to die. And he chose to die, to take his wife. So we celebrate our groom has come. That in our, in our sin, we don't hang our heads in shame. He says, don't speak of your shame again. We, we with glad joy worship our groom who has come to deal with our sin and freely give us righteousness. So this is a moment to believe the gospel that Jesus is the groom who came to die in your place, to take your sin and to cover you in, your, in his righteousness. And so fasting doesn't happen because of celebration, because Jesus is here. That the faith they had looked forward with has arrived. You think about Christmas. You look forward to Christmas every year in celebration and anticipation that changes the way you do your life for a month or two or three or four or five, depending on who you are. And then it arrives and the celebration begins and the anxiety about if the tree's up or the lights are up or if this is done or that's not, it's over because it's just time to celebrate. So Jesus doesn't fast his disciples don't fast because the long-awaited and the looking-forward-to groom has come. And it's time for a wedding. It's time for a celebration. So we celebrate. God has been faithful. And so we worship. That in our unfaithfulness, He was faithful. Not just in His covenant, but faithful to make up for our failure to keep our side of the covenant. The second parable Jesus uses here, so we have the question, we have the groom. The second parable that Jesus tells is about cloth and wine. In Mark 2, 21, it says this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new one from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does... The wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be, is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The, the illustration, the, the, the parable Jesus is telling is like if you were to tear your pants, and, and your mom or somebody was to sew a piece of fabric in its place. If that's a brand new piece of fabric, and your jeans have been washed countless numbers of time, and they sew that in, and then wash them, what's going to happen? When they wash them, and then they throw them in the dryer that new piece of fabric is going to change. And in changing, it's going to stretch the stitching that they have folded and tear the garment even more. It's not going to fix it. It's going to make it worse. And he tells a story about, about wine. So when they would ferment wine, they would take skin of an animal and make it into kind of like a leathery kind of material, and they would sew it into bags. And then they'd put the, the crushed grapes down into that bag, and then they would just hang it. And then let it ferment and actually become wine. And as that would chemically turn from grape juice into wine, and the chemical process would take place, the wineskin, the, 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 the leather on the outside, would expand and contract as that chemical process is taking place. It would move with the wine as it was going. 
And, and what happens is if you do this right, you put the juice in there, blah, 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 you, could, you would pour out beautiful, wonderful, delicious tasting wine. But if you were to take an empty wineskin and take some new grape juice and pour it into that wineskin and then put the top on it and hang it, that wineskin, that old wineskin, that old thing that was wonderful at one point, that old thing, as the chemical processes would take place, it would expand, but the, the, the skin on the outside had hardened. And as that chemical process would expand, it was like your, your potato chips in an airplane. What happens? The air changes, and it just ruptures. And so what you had hoped for by putting new wine in an old wineskin, an old wine container so it would become this beautiful wine, ruptures and breaks and spills all over the place, and it doesn't work. And what Jesus is saying in both of these uh, illustrations, these, these parables, is this. We don't use old things for new things. That the, the old way is not the new way. That there is a new way of the king. That there is a new way of worship. That because Christ has come, there is a new way for us to worship. That we don't worship looking forward at the coming, when, he, when will he come, Jesus. That we worship now having received the gospel, looking backwards. That we don't put the gospel into the Old Testament structure of worship. We don't, we don't do that anymore. That the old way of worship was a looking forward faith in the coming King. There's no longer looking forward for us because our worship has changed. No, we don't worship in the same way. So Jesus doesn't fast in this moment in history because the bridegroom's there. We continue to fast, but our fasting is new. Our worship is new. Our prayer is new. Our, our gathering is new because we're not looking forward to a coming king. We've received him. John Piper puts it this way in the book, Hunger for God, which if you want to dive into understanding fasting from a Christian perspective, just FYI, fasting's not like uniquely Christian, but fasting for Christians is very unique. People have fasted in every religion for all of time, and even just people who want to be skinny. Um, it's not just like, like, there's a religious part of fasting um, for Christians. And in Hunger for God, John Piper puts it this way. The newness of our fasting is this. Its, intense, its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, like the Old Testament, they had never had him, but because we have tasted it so wonderful by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives, until we have had our fill of the wine of Christ's presence. The new fasting, the Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love, by tasting of God's goodness in the gospel of Christ. That our fasting, that our worship is not a like, oh God, would you come? It's a we have tasted the goodness of God in the gospel and we want more of his presence. We have smelled the aroma of, the, of Christ's love and we want more of it. That the new way of worship is not a future hope, it's an already not yet hope. It's a we have already received Christ and the gospel. But yet, the kingdom is still in some ways to come. That we've tasted in the goodness of God. We've seen his glory in Jesus. We've received his love in faith. 
Now our worship and practice of the spiritual disciplines flows out of a longing and desire to taste more deeply. To see more clearly. To feel more fully the love of God that we have received in the gospel. That our worship of the coming, having come, died Christ, motivates and fuels deeper intimacy and presence with Jesus. I mean, you think about it, have you ever had an amazing meal that you just wanted more of? Have you ever had an experience, an exciting experience, but you're like, I can't wait to go back and do that? Have you ever been on a vacation that you're just like, man, we got to go back? Have you ever had a close friendship that maybe distance came from and you just long for that nearness of presence? Have you ever had a loved one that you, you long again to experience the warmth of their affection? And the temporary distance from the presence of that love cultivates a deep longing in your heart. So our fasting, our praying, our worship, our silence and solitude, our singing, our gathering is not in hopes for the coming Christ, but is because we've tasted in Christ in the gospel and we want to feel and experience more of his presence. That that our worship overflows out of having received Christ as our king, as our groom, and moves us forward longing for the day when we can have more. And we want to experience more of it now. That the way of the king is deeper intimacy with God through worship and the spiritual disciplines. So when you think about the spiritual disciplines, here's a handful of them. Fasting, prayer, silence and solitude, singing, gathering, giving. Like those, are, those are some of the spiritual disciplines that the scriptures outline should be things that we as Christians do. But all of them are not looking forward to a Savior or manipulated to cultivate your own love from God, but are a means of experiencing deeper intimacy with Him. Let me explain. Fasting is choosing to let our hunger and longing for more of God to rule in our hearts and root out competing hungers. To root out competing hungers for your love your affection, and to cultivate a deeper satisfaction and longing for more of your groom. Fasting plays a part in killing the adulterous leanings and longings of your heart. By saying, no, I want to I love and feast on Jesus more. Prayer. And prayer is climbing up into the arms of your Father sharing your heart, crying out for comfort, asking big things, confessing your failures, all for the hope of connecting and purpose of connecting more deeply to his heart, to feel and know him more deeply. Silence and solitude is just the practice of of being alone and quiet to hear from your groom. As you sit in silence, the words of your heart begin to surface. It might feel or sound like a lot of anxiety. And we invite the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel over us. 
To practice silence and solitude is to be content in His presence alone. And not to need to mask the noise, but to just be with Him and long for more of His presence. Singing. Why do we sing? I, just, I was thinking about this earlier. Anybody else you know that like gets together just to sing with a bunch of people that they kind of sort of know? Like, no. Like, like that's uniquely a Christian thing. To get together with other people and sing songs together. I seen about this earlier as we were singing, and I was like, how many people who don't know Jesus, who aren't in church, really, unless they're in the car, probably don't ever sing? But singing is an important discipline of a Christian, and it doesn't matter if you sound good. To praise Him for His never-ending, never-giving-up faithful love. And singing has a way of mingling our emotions and our affections, and our minds, and our intellect and understanding of who God is, together in song. Singing is a way that we declare and praise God. Because we, we love Him because of how much He's loved us. When we gather, we come together with the bride collectively to be encouraged to grow in deeper intimacy with our King by singing, by praying together, by sitting under the preaching of His Word, by taking the Lord's Supper, by celebrating in baptism. Because we want to experience more deeply the love that we've received in the Gospel. And that all of these are not, are not to be manipulated to earn the love of God. They're not a way of being saved. That we don't do religious things so God would love us. We do them because He has loved us. And we want to experience more of His love. That we want to feel His nearness and His presence. Like a, a, a husband and wife who are apart. And they write letters to each other. And they FaceTime. And they text message each other in the morning and the evening. And they maybe even have dates over Zoom because it's better than not. And you long and you want so deeply. What makes, what makes people go to like extremes to like make huge cardboard signs and like get a whole gathering party for whenever somebody comes home from some trip on an airplane? What, what, what moves people to do that? They're longing to experience the nearness, presence, and love of that person again moves their behavior, moves their bank accounts, moves, their, moves everything. It moves them in hugs, it moves them in words, it moves them in, in encouragements because they've experienced, they've tasted the nearness of their love and they only want to experience more of it. This is the new way of the king. The new way of the king is a way of worship that's having received his love and longing more deeply for more of it. So when you, I hope, I want to encourage you, if there isn't a regular rhythm and practice of the spiritual disciplines in your life, you probably don't feel the nearness of Jesus unless you're here. I'm just saying that. Like, like if, if the only spiritual discipline practice that I listed on here was that you gather with the church, 
your intimacy with Jesus is probably directly linked to your ability to come here. Think about this year, for example. From March until August, most churches didn't gather. And for his people, you would hope that there was a deeper longing for the presence of Christ. But for a lot of the church that doesn't understand or have a rhythm and practice of the spiritual disciplines, they haven't heard from Jesus in seven months. They haven't sang to Jesus in seven months. You see, I don't know what the future holds, but Christ doesn't want the only moment that you experience his nearness and his his love to be when you gather with the rest of his bride. But when you're in the car and when you sit by by your chair with a cup of coffee and his word, or you go sit on the back porch at night and just sit in quiet, and you pray, when you fast and say, Jesus, I want you more than food, Jesus, this has taken too deep a root in my heart and is in danger of becoming something I run to in adultery, so I'm going to, I'm going to say no. And I'm just going to seek you. That worship and spiritual disciplines is there to cultivate an intimate, deep, abiding relationship with your groom, Jesus. And so if there's not a regular rhythm and pattern, I want to encourage you to figure that out, to start thinking about that, to at your home group talk about how can we be fasting? How can we be daily praying? How can we practice silence and solitude? What does it even look like? Most people don't even know that's something you should do. How can we sing? Not just when we're here, but in general. How important is the gathering of the church to you? That we need to put in practice and set a regular rhythm and pattern. Our Our culture doesn't do it for us. The Jewish culture did it for them. Ours doesn't do it for us. Maybe you're here today and you need to embrace Jesus as your Savior. That that you've just realized today that you've been living a semi-religious life and hope that God would love you. And God showed his love for you not by saying, okay, that was good, that was good, but by coming and dying in your place. To take your sin upon him and to cover you in his righteousness. And you need to confess him as Lord and believe today. Maybe it's just simply worship right now. Praising Jesus that he is a good king, a good loving husband who has come and covered your sin. Then you don't need to be in shame any longer. You see, Jesus is the bridegroom of God's unfaithful people. The long-awaited bridegroom has arrived to an unfaithful bride. But in his love, he washes her clean, covers her sin, and she, us, praise him in worship. Not to earn his affection that we have already freely received in the gospel. But because of the love we have received, wells up into worship and the spiritual disciplines. Because we long more deeply to experience the nearness of our King. I'm going to pray, and, and as we close, I want to encourage you that if you need to talk, if something's come to, come to your heart or mind, um, Pastor Brandon will be over here. I'll be over here. We'd love to sit with you, pray with you. If you need to put your faith in Jesus and you want to, I don't know how to do that, come up. We'd love to walk you through uh, making Jesus your Lord and confessing him as your Savior. If you need somebody to pray for you, we'll gladly do that. I encourage you that we spend these first two songs in prayer.
Uh, we spend these first two, to, or sorry, first song, not two, first song in prayer or in worship or in silence or journaling with Jesus, letting him work in our hearts in response to what he said. And then we encourage you to go get your kids. If they're kindergarten through first grade, go grab them and bring them in here for the last two songs so that they can sing and hear you sing to your Savior, to your King. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus, the promised bridegroom who came, whose love surpassed all our sin. God, would you, would you bring salvation today? Holy Spirit, would you move and confess, uh, convict us of sin so that we can move in confession and find deeper intimacy with you? Would you help us to cultivate a, a rich practice of the spiritual disciplines in our lives? To experience more and more of the longing, presence, and nearness, and love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.